committee will come to order. Uh, well, thank you all for coming today, and uh, we have an all-star uh, cast of witnesses. Before we do that, both the ranking member and I uh, have some remarks regarding NATO. This is uh, an auspicious occasion on the 70th or close to the 70th anniversary of NATO, which is uh, day after tomorrow. But in any event, uh, what, uh, what I would like to do is uh, talk a little bit about NATO, which is, uh, uh, in my judgment, and I think most people's judgment, the most successful military alliance in the history of the world. And to look ahead at the role of NATO and uh, how we can play in a quickly evolving threat environment. NATO was founded uh, by its first 12 members after the shock of the Soviet blockade of Berlin and the West's airlift in 1948 and 1949 made us realize the threat that the Soviet Union posed to peace and prosperity. That conflict is far behind us, but NATO has remained an important piece of the framework that supports our collective security. NATO has come to the aid of the United States in Afghanistan after attacks of September 11th. It has ended genocides and maintained peace in the Balkans. It has trained troops of the new Iraqi government, run air policing missions uh, on Europe's eastern flank, help end the genocide in Darfur, uh, provided assistance to the U.S. after uh, Hurricane Katrina, and most importantly, sustained the period of unprecedented peace among the major European powers. NATO has proven not only to be a military success, but a political and economic one. For its members, NATO's security umbrella has provided the kind of stable environment necessary for economic growth and investment. Former Soviet bloc countries clamored for NATO membership, not only uh, for protection against Russia, but for the economic strength that membership could foster. U.S. trade with our fellow NATO members remains key to our economy. Last week, Ranking Member Menendez and I, along with several of our colleagues, introduced a resolution expressing our strong support for NATO and in congratulating it on its 70 years of successes. Tomorrow morning, we will have the honor of welcoming NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg to address a joint session of Congress. Then later this year, this committee will have the opportunity to vote to approve the accession of North Macedonia into the alliance. Looking back and remembering the accomplishments of NATO is important. NATO remains the preeminent political military alliance in the world. Together, we work to defeat the Soviet Union and usher in decades of peace and prosperity in Europe. I would also argue that the success of institutions like the European Union were only possible because of how NATO reorganized Europe. NATO is the only international organization where unanimity and thus sovereignty is entirely protected. This means and meant no matter how small a country was in the alliance, they were treated as equals with the largest states because every nation's opinion mattered as much as the next in the alliance. While we should uh, be celebratory of all that NATO has accomplished and the peace it has preserved, I also want this hearing to look forward how can NATO confront the full set of security challenges that are quickly emerging? Cyber warfare, China, disinformation, and remain uh, relevant in this new environment. At the same time, Russia has reemerged as a threat to NATO nations. If there's any doubt about that, uh, anyone can spend a short period of time 
with uh, the governments of Georgia and the Ukraine to convince us how dangerous the uh, Russia is today. And in addition to that, spend a few minutes with the victims of the people who've been poisoned recently in London. Russia is a threat and remains a threat and is getting worse instead of better. NATO also faces a number of challenges from within. First is the need to invest more in defense. It is important to note that the number of allies spending 2% of their GDP on defense and 20% of their defense budgets on equipment has increased since 2014, adding more than $100 billion to European defense spending. Seven allies current, uh, currently meet their 2% pledge, and 18 in total are on track to do so by 2024. But we have also seen a couple of countries suggest they will cut their defense budgets in, future, in, in a few years. This is challenging. Congress feels strongly that the financial commitment must be met. I know of at least one other person in this town who feels even more strongly, and I've had occasion to discuss this with him on a number of occasions. We're all dedicated to the fact that commitments made must be met. However, the amount of money is not the only issue. We must continue to modernize our defense capability. Spending 20% on modernization is a good start, but countries should also see this goal as a floor and not as a ceiling. Another challenge the alliance faces is one uh, that of threat assessments. Our allies along the eastern flank face real security challenges created by Russia, whether through deployments in the Kaliningrad or disinformation campaigns targeted at ethnic communities in their countries. Distance from Russia should not diminish the concern over Russian tactics and support for all members of the alliance. At the same time, countries along the southern flank of the alliance have substantial challenges with migrant flows and the ability of extremists to use those flows to move into allied countries. Again, problems of this magnitude do not stop at country borders. They affect all, though differently. Better intelligence sharing and maritime security is needed and something that NATO can provide. Mobility in the alliance remains a challenge as road, rail, and seaports create challenges for moving military equipment around the alliance. And the bureaucracy of the EU adds enormous difficulties to establishing requirements for the construction of new transportation networks. Uh, bureaucracy is always a challenge. We Americans know bureaucracy when we see it. We're not immune either. In an era where, in an era where speed increases deterrence, the pace of bureaucracy is undermining efforts to improve it. We all need to do better. Finally, as I said earlier, NATO is the most successful political uh, military alliance in the history of the world, precisely because it defends common values and principles like democracy, human rights, and rule of law. We've seen NATO allies have difficulty adhering to these values as member countries and their institutions mature. But all of us, all of us, must remain committed to those core values and upholding them. In closing, do not let all these critiques make it sound like NATO is weak or imperiled. Thursday will mark 70 years of this alliance and its successes. I said the past 70 years were not always as easy as our memories uh, would have us believe, but those disagreements have taught us how to work through our issues to find solutions. It is that constructive spirit that we should look to as NATO moves forward. Make no mistake about America's commitment to NATO. We are committed. We are committed to moving forward through the next 70 years and make them as successful as the last 70 years. Uh, Senator Menendez.
Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, for calling uh, a very important hearing as we approach the 70th anniversary of NATO. And I certainly want to associate myself with all of the remarks you made as it relates to the importance of the NATO alliance. Uh, over the past two years, we have found ourselves repeatedly having to express support for the alliance in the face of persistent skepticism by President Trump. I am happy to regularly express our commitment to the alliance, one that has done so much to preserve security since World War II. And I applaud you, Mr. Chairman, for leading a resolution on the committee expressing support for the alliance, which I'm privileged to co-lead with you. I would have hoped through our consistent, rock-solid, bipartisan commitment to NATO, through letters, resolutions, and votes on the floor, our military leaders' reaffirmation would somehow break through with the President. The American people support this alliance, and it's about time that he unequivocally recognized that. These concerns were amplified last month when the White House floated a plan called Cost Plus 50 Percent, where any country hosting U.S. troops would pay the full price of American soldiers deployed on their soil plus 50 percent or more for the privilege of hosting them. Thankfully, this proposal has met with strong bipartisan backlash. There is a reason many times for our own forward promotion of our interests that we cite bases in different parts of the world, not just for that country's interest, but for our own interests in terms of national security. I'd like to quickly address four challenges to the alliance that I hope we can examine today. First, as many of us who were in Munich last February heard directly from our strongest allies, the President's erratic language on NATO continues to erode confidence in the U.S. commitment to Article 5 and the alliance overall. What was previously unthinkable, that the United States could withdraw from the alliance it was instrumental in shaping, remains a real concern for many of us. That's why Senator Graham and I included within our DASCA legislation provisions that would subject any such move to Senate consent. Senator Kane has also led efforts on a similar piece of important legislation. It took Senate consent to get us into NATO, so it should take Senate consent for any effort to remove us from the alliance. In February, I visited NATO headquarters and saw the memorial to those lost on September 11th of 2001. This was a sober reminder of the only time that NATO's Article 5 has been invoked. Our allies were there for us in our time of need. There should be no question that we will be there for them. Second, despite what some say, our allies are largely stepping up to the plate. Starting in 2014, in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, countries across the alliance began to significantly increase defense spending. There is bipartisan consensus that spending needs to be maintained, not only for the 2% commitment of GDP to defense, but more importantly, the 20% to new procurement. Third, I'm concerned that the United States is moving increasingly to establish bilateral military ties to avoid coordination at NATO. Many Europeans see this as another divide and rule tactic the Trump administration is using to weaken European integration and unity. While achieving consensus is hard, our security and the transatlantic alliance are best served when NATO acts together. And fourth, on a positive note, the Senate will deliberate this year on the accession of North Macedonia to the alliance. As we reminded Montenegro during its accession process, NATO is also an alliance of values, and that Article II commitments are just as important as others in the NATO Charter. 
North Macedonia must commit to strengthening their free institutions, the rule of law, and protecting minorities in the country while also bolstering its defense capabilities. Finally, it's worth highlighting why we need NATO today. The threat the Russian Federation poses to European security is only intensified. The Skripal attack on British soil, continued interference in politics across Europe, intensified military aggression in the European country of Ukraine. As we bolster the defenses of those on the front lines through the Enhanced Forward Presence and European Deterrence Initiative, we must continue to strengthen our defenses against hybrid warfare tactics and work with partners to defend against constantly changing threats from the Kremlin. On August 24th of 1949, the North Atlantic Charter signing ceremony took place in Washington. At that event, President Truman said, in this pact, we hope to create a shield against aggression and the fear of aggression, a bulwark which will permit us to get on with the real business of government and society, the business of achieving a fuller and happier life for all of our citizens. Nearly 70 years later, those words still ring true. NATO has provided for our common defense over the years, and in doing so, it has created the environment for our prosperity and that of our allies. That, Mr. Chairman, seems like a pretty good deal to me, and I look forward to hearing our witnesses' testimony. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Um, we will now turn to uh, our witnesses, and as I said earlier, this is an all-star cast, and we certainly uh, want to welcome them. We're going to start uh, with uh, Mr. Ian Brzezinski, He's a resident senior fellow with the uh, Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. He also runs the Brzezinski Group, which provides strategic insight. Mr. Brzezinski served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Europe and NATO Policy from 2001 to 2005, where he was responsible for NATO expansion, alliance force planning and transformation, and NATO operations in the Balkans, the Mediterranean, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Uh, Mr. Brzezinski served seven years on Capitol Hill, first as a legislative assistant for national security affairs to Senator Bill Roth, and then as a senior professional staff member on this committee. Earlier, uh, Mr. Brzezinski advised the Ukrainian National Security Council, Foreign Ministry, Defense Ministry, and Parliament, served as a member of the policy planning staff in the Defense Department, and worked for five years as principal at Bose Allen and Hamilton, providing policy and technical support to U.S. combatant com commands and to foreign clients. So with that, we'll start with Mr. Brzezinski. The floor is yours. Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, distinguished members of the committee, as we approach NATO's 70th anniversary, thank you for allowing me to participate in the stock-taking of the alliance. NATO is an invaluable alliance. As the chairman said, it is history's most successful alliance. The transatlantic security architecture it provides has transformed former adversaries into allies and deterred outside aggression. European allies that are secure and at peace are inherently better positioned for prosperity. They are better able to work with the United States to address challenges in and beyond Europe. NATO has been a powerful force multiplier for the United States. Time and time again, European, Canadian, and U.S. military personnel have served shoulder to shoulder on battlefields in Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere around the world. The alliance provides the United States the ability to leverage unmatched political, economic, and military power. NATO's actions benefit from the political legitimacy unique to this community of democracies. NATO's economic power, some $40 trillion in GDP, dwarfs that of any rival. 
No other military alliance can field a force as capable as NATO. These assets only become more important in today's increasingly challenging security environment. That environment features the return of great power competition, featuring Russia's revanchist ambitions and China's growing assertiveness, a disturbing erosion of the rules-based order that has been the foundation of peace, freedom, and prosperity since the end of World War II, third, a growing collision between liberal democracy and authoritarian nationalism. A fourth dynamic is the advent of rapid technological change. The impending introduction of hypersonic weapons, <coughs> artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and other technologies to the battlefield portends a radical redefinition of the requirements for stability and security. If NATO is to be as successful in the future as it has been over the past seven decades, it must adapt to match these challenges. Toward that end, NATO's agenda must include the following five priorities. First, the alliance must accelerate its efforts to increase preparedness for high-intensity conflict. After the Cold War, NATO's force posture shifted toward peacekeeping and counterinsurgency. Today, Russia's military aggressions and sustained military buildup have reanimated the need to prepare for high-intensity warfare, the likes of which we have not had to face since the collapse of the Soviet Union. This is a matter of real concern. It's notable that the commander of UCOM, United States European Command, testified last month that he is not yet, quote, comfortable with the deterrent posture we have in Europe, end quote. He warned that, quote, a theater not sufficiently set for full-spectrum contingency operations poses increased risk to our ability to compete, deter aggression, and prevail in conflict if necessary. This reality underscores a second NATO priority. Canada and our European allies must invest more to increase their military capability and readiness. Their investments must address key NATO shortfalls, including air and missile defense, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, long-range fires, among others. Time is long overdue for our allies to carry their share of the security burden. Third, NATO must further reinforce its flanks in North Central Europe, the Black Sea region, and the Arctic. These are the foci of Russia's military buildup, provocations, and aggression. In North Central Europe, the challenge is acute. The Alliance's four enhanced forward presence battalions stationed in Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, they're positioned against divisions of Russian ground forces backed by sophisticated aircraft, air defense, helicopters, and missiles. Fourth, NATO must more substantially embrace and support the membership aspirations of Ukraine and Georgia. NATO enlargement is one of the great success stories of the post-Cold War era. It expanded the zone of peace and security in Europe and strengthened the alliance's military capability. But the alliance needs to also provide Ukraine and Georgia a clear path to membership, recognizing it will take them time to meet the alliance's political and military requirements. There is a clear lesson from Moscow's invasions of Ukraine and Georgia. NATO's hesitation regarding the membership aspirations of these two democracies only animated Vladimir Putin's sense of opportunity to reassert control over what has been allowed to become a destabilizing gray zone in Europe's strategic landscape. Finally, the alliance needs to actively consider the role it will play in the West's relationship with China. While China is not an immediate military threat to Europe, its actions against the rule-based international order affects Europe as it does the United States. NATO can play a constructive, if not significant, role in the West's strategy to shape a more cooperative relationship with Beijing. 
As the United States confronts the challenges of the 21st century, there is no instrument more essential, indeed ind indispensable, than NATO. The political influence, economic power, and military might available through this community of democracies cannot be sustained in the absence of a robust U.S. military commitment to the alliance. That is the price of leadership, and it is one whose returns have been constantly advantageous to the United States. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, we uh, sincerely appreciate that, Mr. Rosinski. Now we'll hear uh, from Dr. Uh, Karen Donfried, and she's president of the German Marshall Fund of the United States, a nonprofit organization with whom most of us are familiar, uh, dedicated to strengthening uh, transatlantic cooperation. Before uh, joining General Marshall, the German Marshall Fund, Dr. Donfried was the special assistant to the president and senior director for European affairs on the National Security uh, Council. Dr. Donfried served as the national intelligence officer for Europe on the National, Intelligen on the national Intelligence Council, a Europe uh, specialist at the Congressional Research Service. From 2003 to 2005, she was responsible for the Europe portfolio on the U.S. Department of State's policy planning staff. Dr. Donfried is a member of the Board of Trustees of Wesleyan University, her undergraduate alma mater. She serves as a senior fellow at the Center for European Studies at Harvard University and is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the American Council on Germany. Dr. Donfried has a PhD in MALD from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University and a bachelor's in government and German from Wesleyan University. Dr. Donfried, welcome. The floor is yours. Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, other members of the committee, thank you for this opportunity to address NATO's value to the United States. I just want to say the views that I will express will be my own, not those of the German Marshall Fund. As you noted, in two days, on April 4, NATO turns 70. And that truly is a remarkable achievement. The secret to NATO's longevity has been its ability to adapt to and meet the challenges of a changing strategic landscape. Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, you both did a wonderful job of reviewing that history, so I will not. NATO, which as you mentioned, is both a political and a military alliance, has been a key pillar upholding the rules-based international order that the United States has long promoted. I would like to highlight three opportunities that I see concerning our relationship with and role in NATO. First, burden sharing. Second, NATO's relationship with the European Union. And third, the challenge posed by China. First, let me address the debate about burden sharing, which goes back to the earliest days of the alliance. Defense spending alone tells us surprisingly little about a country's actual military capabilities. In 2018, NATO Europe spent $264 billion on defense, which represents the second largest defense budget in the world, outpaced only by the United States. That European total represents about 1.5 times China's official defense budget and roughly four times Russia's. We need to focus not only on the total level of defense spending by allies, but equally, as you noted, on what that spending is allocated to. To be sure, allies need to spend 2% of their GDP on defense, a goal they recommitted themselves to in 2014. 
but it matters just as much that they spend that 20% of those outlays on major new equipment, including the related research and development. That 20% guideline measures the scale and pace of modernization. If allies' equipment is obsolete or interoperability gaps widened, NATO will be weaker. Moreover, some expenditures that count toward the 2% target, such as outlays for military pensions, contribute little, if at all, to current military readiness. These nuances are often lost in the current debate over allies' contribution to NATO. Second, NATO needs to cooperate in more meaningful ways with the European Union. The post-war recipe for a stable, peaceful, democratic, and prosperous Europe included two critical ingredients, US engagement and European integration. The EU shares 22 members with NATO. And the EU has made significant strides over the past year on defense cooperation, making the moment ripe for enhanced NATO engagement with the EU. There are many forces pulling Europe apart today, from the drama of Brexit to the rise of illiberal populism. Those can often overwhelm unity. Given the direct interest the United States has in Europe's future, we should strive not to be yet another force dividing EU members. The European Union is not a foe. It is a partner and a very important one at that. Admittedly, the United States has long been skeptical of efforts by the EU to enhance defense cooperation. We focused more on the risks of an enhanced EU defense role, such as unnecessary duplication of NATO capabilities, than the possible benefits. In a variety of areas, enhanced NATO-EU cooperation could make a real difference, and I would actually highlight military mobility as one of those. A more integrated transport network on the European continent is critical for both organizations, and we also could benefit from a more robust response to hybrid threats and enhanced counterterrorism capabilities. NATO will engage more seriously with the EU only if Washington encourages such cooperation. Third, a rising China challenges both sides of the Atlantic. The primary concern in US national security today is the reemergence of long-term strategic competition from China and Russia. NATO has a robust strategy concerning Russia but China barely features in alliance discussions. This can and should change. Europe and Canada recognize the geopolitical challenge that China poses. Just last month, for the first time, the EU identified China as, quote, an economic competitor in pursuit of technological leadership and a systemic rival promoting alternative models of governance. If the United States wants to mount a successful response to China's rise, we will need close cooperation from all of our democratic allies. The security implications of China's increasing presence in Europe are clear. Our European allies worry about how to manage China's expanding footprint on the European continent, whether through strategic infrastructure investments by way of the Belt and Road Initiative 
or through critical digital infrastructure like Huawei's 5G technology. These issues need to rise to the top of NATO's agenda. Let me conclude by underscoring the vital role I see Congress playing in providing leadership in the alliance. Our allies have grown increasingly concerned about mixed signals emanating from the administration about NATO's value. They had believed that the alliance was an enduring strategic commitment rather than a shifting arrangement based on transactions. Whether through your support for increased funding for the European Deterrence Initiative, the reestablishment of the Senate NATO Observer Group, the impressive congressional participation in the Munich Security Conference in February, or the bipartisan initiative to the NATO Secretary General to address a joint session of Congress tomorrow, your growing engagement goes a long way to reassuring our allies about U.S. commitment. Anniversaries are not only for celebrating. Remembering past achievements can inspire, but neither nostalgia nor hope is a policy. NATO members need to unify around a common sense of purpose and recommit their countries to investing more in credible capabilities. The reason to do so is not because the United States is asking. It is because the current strategic reality demands it. Thank you. Well, our thanks to both of you. Uh, uh, those certainly were uh, uh, outstanding remarks. We're going to uh, open it up to questions now. And uh, just uh, uh, I'll, I'll start with one uh, briefly and then turn it over to the uh, ranking member. Last night, I gave a similar speech to a group of uh, NATO policy planners from around the, uh, of our allies. Uh, they were about all, it was a pretty good sized group. They were all represented there. And uh, this was their inaugural uh, meeting. And I told them I thought that if I was a planner, I would think that meeting more than once every 70 years might be helpful. Um, <laughs> they uh, acknowledged uh, as much uh, and uh, uh, promised to do better in the future. But in any event, I took questions, and the questions, most of them were, were pretty straightforward, much along the lines of what the ranking member and I have talked about. Um, but I had one question that, uh, that uh, uh, Dr. Donfrey, you, re you referred to, and that was, uh, it, it was a sim speech similar to what I gave here at the beginning, and it was modestly critical of the bureaucracy when it came to infrastructure. Um, and uh, trying to be self-deprecating, I told them we Americans are familiar with the bureaucracy. We know it when we see it. Uh, but uh, in any event, uh, uh, one of the, I won't identify the country, but one of them got up and said, well, uh, we appreciate that. We agree with you. And um, I'm paraphrasing. So how much are you guys going to kick in? All right. Uh, it wasn't that direct, uh, uh, but... Uh, it was a question that would actually took me back a little bit. They obviously aren't familiar with politics here, knowing that we haven't been able to pass an infrastructure bill here in the United States, which we badly need and want. Uh, but in addition to that, of course, we don't have, have funding for it. So I explained as delicately as I could the precarious financial position of the country and uh, moved on. But I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. I, I, I would say that it's my sense that the rest of the audience knew that uh, the questioner was tilting into windmill, but uh, nonetheless, uh, I thought uh, they might uh, be at least uh, uh, 
feeling good about the, the kind of question that he was asking and being sympathetic with the position. So your, your thoughts, please, both of you, on, on that issue. On military mobility, Senator. Mike. On military mobility, the EU is undertaking an important initiative. As part of its connecting uh, Europe facility, it's, it's planning to dedicate or earmark 6.5 billion euros for the budget uh, period, which I think is 2021 to 2027. Uh, that money is going to be allocated specifically for upgrading roads, bridges, um, railheads, uh, so that they can, heavy, they can handle heavy military equipment. So that's an important initiative, and the EU should be complimented for undertaking that. There's a second uh, initiative worth noting, and that's the Three Cs initiative. Uh, it's a Central European initiative to accelerate the development of cross-border um, transport, energy, and telecom infrastructure among the countries be between the Baltic, Black, and Adriatic Seas. And that, have, of course, has a big road and, and rail component to it and could be leveraged uh, to support um, transport routes that can handle heavy equipment and move military equipment east and west and north and south, and it merits a U.S. government support. Thank you. Dr. Dunford. I would just add, I completely agree with Ian's point about the fact that the EU is dedicating resources, the 6.5 billion euros, to modernizing their infrastructure. And it was striking to me because we saw last July at the last NATO summit, NATO revamp its command structure. And one of the new commands that was added was an enabling command that will be based in Ulm, Germany. And a focus of that command is a, improving the movement of troops and equipment through Europe. And there was a great quote at the time that the goal of this new command is to ensure that NATO has the right forces in the right place at the right time. And I think those two examples illustrate the extent to which there are synergies between what NATO is trying to do and what the EU is trying to do, and that we could benefit from those more. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Menendez. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you both for very insightful testimony. Uh, let me ask you a simple question. Should the Senate pass legislation which would require a Senate vote in the event that any administration seeks to withdraw from NATO? Yes. Should I say more? <laughs> I, I think it is yes, very... Yes, would do, but, yes, uh, but, uh, but I'm happy to hear more if you, if you want to. Mr. Ian? Mr. Brzezinski? I think it's important to, for, for Congress, for the Senate, and the House of Representatives to underscore their commitment to NATO, uh, their determination to support uh, the U.S. government in the execution of all the NATO responsibilities. While I appreciate greatly the sentiment behind this, this this proposed um, legislation, I am a little concerned that it creates an impression that once passed, it solves a problem. Uh, and doesn't necessarily so, because as Commander-in-Chief, as our chief diplomat, the U.S. President can basically stand down uh, U.S. military personnel, U.S. diplomatic personnel, and tell them to do nothing on NATO, and thereby, thereby grind NATO no. to a halt. But that would be an ex uh, it's very possible, but that would be an extension to the extent that e e if you are uh, then not committed to Article 5 either, right? If you're going to stand down and not respond, then you're also not committed to Article 5. So you've hollowed out the very existence of your participation in NATO. If anything, you have violated your uh, agreement to NATO. So my view simply is uh, 
In my visits uh, to both uh, the EU and in the Munich Security Conference, it became very vividly clear to me that there is a real angst among our allies about this ironclad commitment that they have always thought existed. And, and so I think a reassurance is that, well, before any president, this or any future one, contemplates that, having a vote of the Senate will be essential. And I think that because uh, the allies know largely with the, how the Senate feels, including on the question of 2% and the 20%, but nonetheless that there's an ironclad reality to the commitment to, to NATO, that, that would be reassuring. So um, I, I don't think it does any harm, but I appreciate your point. Let me ask uh, you both, how would you assess the diplomatic approach taken by the administration in urging countries to increase defense spending, which in Germany's case appears to have slowed somewhat? Are we experiencing a backlash against uh, the assertive diplomatic approach in Berlin taken by the administration? This in many ways connects to your first question, Senator Menendez, because alliance fundamentally rests on shared interests, common values, and alliance cohesion. And that alliance cohesion, part of it is trust, part of it is trusting that your allies are there to defend you and that they're spending the proper amount on defense so that they have capabilities that allow the alliance to perform the tasks it needs to perform. And I think the challenge in the way we've been discussing the level of defense spending is that it can erode alliance cohesion because I think some of our allies are feeling that we're using it almost as a threat. If you don't do this, then we, the US, will pull out of NATO. And that erodes alliance cohesion. And that's why in my remarks, I was trying to stress that as important as that 2% of GDP spent on defense is, it's critically important how that money is spent. And I am hopeful that if we reframe that debate and focus on the capabilities on the outputs from that defense spending, it may allow us to move in a more constructive direction. Mm -hmm. Now to your specific question about Germany, I do think every NATO member should feel bound by the commitments agreed to most recently at the Wales Summit in 2014. It was all NATO members that recommitted themselves to the 2% guideline. Now, it's not like club and dues. It's saying we are going to move toward spending 2% of our GDP on defense by 2024. And I think all of us who care about the alliance were disconcerted to see Germany's budget plan suggests that German defense spending would actually decline in future years. So I do think we need to keep pressure on our allies to spend more, but we also want to engage in that conversation as constructively as possible. Yeah, yeah. having listened to Chancellor Merkel at the, uh, at the Munich Security Conference, I'm not sure that our approach there is, is the best one to achieve the mutual goal that we have. Finally, let me ask you a question, Dr. Donford. You said, before, for President Trump, alliances are not something enduring, they are something transactional. I wonder if you can expand on that. How is the President's rhetoric affecting European confidence in the U.S. security guarantees to Europe? What long-term effects do you anticipate on transatlantic relations if this is the continuum? Let me start by underscoring the fact that the United States is the lead nation in NATO. 
when you read the North Atlantic Treaty, if a country wants to withdraw from the alliance, where do they send that notification? To Washington. So it's somehow ironic that today we're talking about the possibility that the US might withdraw from that alliance. And I do think that the US security guarantee to Europe has been critical to post-war peace, stability, and prosperity on the European continent. The reason the US was supportive of creating the NATO alliance in 1949 was not an act of benevolence. It had beneficial aspects for others, but it was very much our self-interest. We've had, had the experience of two world wars and did not want to return to the European continent in a future world war. So just to remind why this alliance was something we felt was in our enlightened self-interest. And from that point, our Canadian and European allies have both felt that that American security guarantee was something enduring. And yes, there are important differences of opinion that we've had over the seven decades. You could point to the disagreement over, or the crisis over the Suez Canal in the 50s. And in every decade, there have been serious crises. Our stationing of intermediate nuclear forces in Europe. The Iraq War in 2003, but we have always believed that at the end of the day we were there for each other and that Article 5 bound all of us. And what's happened over the past year is in part because of specific comments the President has made suggesting that our commitment to our allies is not enduring but rather depends on very explicit deals particularly on defense spending, that we might actually not be there in future. And I think that has been one factor that has been damaging to alliance cohesion. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to the witnesses. It's great to have you here. In Senator Risha's uh, opening comments, he referred to NATO as the preeminent military alliance in the world, also used the word most successful military alliance. Senator Menendez would have layered superlatives on too, but he didn't have to because the chairman had put the superlatives on the table. Um, Mr. Brzezinski, you used the words essential and indispensable. And then Dr. Dunfried, in your written testimony, you say that NATO has powerfully served American interests as well as global interests, interests of our NATO partners. I gave a speech at the French American Foundation in Paris two Thursdays ago uh, about the 70th anniversary of NATO. And I was, I was very interested in the questions that I got. The, the issue of mixed signals, Dr. Donfrey, that you put on the table, Congress taking some strong action on funding, the President sometimes suggesting that we might get out of NATO, maybe it's to negotiate for more contributions and you can understand that negotiating behavior. But, but I, I was interested in this and it kind of goes to the question that Senator Menendez asked you, Mr. Brzezinski. The question I was really getting was less about what the President is saying was, w w than this. Are the president's comments indicative of what the American public think? Um, Sylvie Kaufman is the um, former editor of Le Monde, and she was my interviewer after my speech. And she was really focusing on the president's comments as more generally, the way we read it is that the American public is losing interest in this alliance. So I have a bill like Senator Menendez does. It's, it's slightly different. Um, I would, the bill that I have said that no president can remove from NATO without doing one of two things, either getting the Senate 
to affirm that by a two-thirds vote, which we used to get into the treaty, or by an act of Congress that would have to go through both houses with veto and override possibility. But the a president could not unilaterally do it. And as we talked about the bill there, it was interesting the perception from Sylvie Kaufman and others that that's less of a bill about the president as it would be a bill about the legislature, which is the American people's elected Article I branch, affirming just how much we believe that this is the preeminent military alliance in the world, the most successful in the world, essential and indispensable. And so it would be the case, as Mr. Brzezinski said, even if we passed it, a president could start to stand down. But the message that we would send if we did pass something like this is not just what Congress thinks about it, but what Congress thinks about it being elected from 435 congressional districts, being elected from 50 states, that we view this as so very, very important. Um, I had hoped the bill that I introduced, which is Senate Joint Resolution 4, is I say I introduced, 12 of us introduced it, six Democrats, six Republicans, very bipartisan, and I know the same is true of Senator Menendez's bill. I, I had hoped that we might be able to deal with that matter in connection with the NATO 70th. We don't have to deal with it on the week of the NATO 70th, but I do think anniversaries, as Dr. Donfried said, are not just times to celebrate, they're also times to chart a new course and, and commit and recommit. Um, with proposals on the table that are as bipartisan as these, I would hope that this committee might take up one of these and find a path forward where we could clearly state that a Senate that affirmed NATO at its foundation and that will vote soon on a new nation's entrance into NATO, which the Senate does, is also taking the position that there will be no unilateral executive withdrawal under this or any other president uh, from NATO. I, I just, I think that's so important and I think the time is right to do it. I will admit to a little bias too, there's a joint forces uh, command in NATO in Norfolk. Um, this is something that together with the presence in Brussels and some of the other uh, cities within NATO where there's a little bit of a command presence, it's been something that's been powerful in connection with the Atlantic Command of the United States Navy. But I just, I just feel like if it is preeminent and the best in the world, and it is, if it is the most successful, if it is indispensable, if it is essential, if it has protected the U.S. interest, then, then Congress ought to say it, and not so much on our behalf, Congress ought to say it on behalf of the American public and clarify that we're, we're you can count on us. You can count on us for the long haul. We'll have disputes and debates and things will happen and there will be disagreements, but that's what we want to send. That's who, the nation we want to be. You can count on us. So I, um, I appreciate the witnesses being here and appreciate the chair for calling this hearing at an important time, and I'm most excited about the opportunity to hear the Secretary General tomorrow. With that, Mr. Chair, I'll yield back to you. Thank you, Senator Kane. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Good to see you uh, both. Thank you very much for being here. Um, uh, here's my theory of the case, and I'd love to hear your responses to it. I, I, I think that Russia um, delights in some way, shape, and form in our obsession over the 2% threshold. Uh, our evaluation of whether countries in NATO are standing up capabilities necessary to defend themselves is essentially limited to their investment in military hardware. Uh, and yet, Russia has been wildly successful in weakening uh, many of our allies, in weakening the alliance without invading a single NATO country. Uh, they have developed over the course of time all sorts of 
old-fashioned and newfangled capabilities, uh, whether it be uh, the spread of Russian-backed propaganda, whether it be the uh, allure of their natural resources, uh, or just old-fashioned corruption and graft and bribery um, that's done you know, significant damage to uh, countries in the alliance and on the periphery of the alliance. I think we made the right move to put a big annual commitment into the European Reassurance Initiative. Uh, we spend a lot of money on that on an annual basis, $4 billion, and I think it's money well spent. But I also think that Russia delights in the fact that we spend $4 billion on military hardware on the border and $0 on actually trying to get countries in Europe to be energy independent of Russia. Um, and so I just want to query you both uh, as to the utility of this obsession that we have about evaluating your participation in the alliance based pretty much solely on how much money you spend on troops and tanks and guns. I think that's a really important conversation to have, but it shouldn't be what has been, at least for Congress, the beginning and the end of the conversation. Is it time, A, to actually update the way in which we decide whether countries are full partners in the alliance? Is it time to say that we are going to count something other than just military hardware into the equation? Or if not that, what are the other mechanisms by which we can acknowledge the actual capacities that Russia has uh, and the lack of those capacities that exist inside the alliance uh, t today, especially given how we talk about countries' contributions? That's my question to you, and I'd love to hear both of your thoughts. Senator, on, on burden sharing, uh, the 2% is imperfect. 2% me metric is imperfect. But I like it because it's simple and it's proportional. And when I look at what is supposed, what drives it, what's driving the 2% metric is the need for ready, deployable forces that on day one are ready to go to battle. And NATO has struggled from day one of its existence in getting all allies to ensure that they are making a proportionate contribution to that military readiness. But let me, let me maybe ask, okay, so I can see where you're heading with the answer. Do you think that NATO should be engaged in those other questions of security? Or is that something that should happen in a different forum? If you're talking about energy security or information security, um, are those conversations that shouldn't happen inside of NATO? Because of the nature of conflict and competition today, the alliance will have to play a role and have to have capacities in the cyber domain and to a certain degree in the information domain. It will have to have its antenna up to watch and observe hybrid operations by our adversaries. But if you go back to the Cold War and you look at that time and the way we defeated the Soviet Union, the West, led by the United States, had a multidimensional strategy. It had the alliance with the pointy-headed spear pointed east. It had sophisticated political operations to support dissidents and different movements in the Soviet bloc and the Soviet Union. It had a fairly massive information infrastructure called the United States Information Agency. Uh, they were all coordinated together as part of a national and as part of an allied response to the challenge posed by the Soviet Union at that time. So when I look, bring those lessons to today, I see an alliance that has to improve its military readiness. It has to be aware of what's going on in the other domains, but I see a real gap 
between the amount of resources that a country like Russia or a country like China puts into information and hybrid operations compared to what we do. We, you know, I think when USIA was shut down in 1998 or 99, it had roughly a, a budget of about $3 billion hmm. 20 years ago. Uh, I think our information operations budget is half a, half a billion dollars in, in the U.S. government, if that, uh, and kind of dissipated among different organizations, not centralized in an information agency as it was in the past. Okay. If I can just jump in with two points. First, I would completely agree with you that it is important to focus not only on money and how much money is spent. It matters how that money is spent. Uh, Russia spends much less than NATO Europe does on defense. Part of the reason that Europeans are getting less value for their euros is because of the inefficiencies, redundancies, and clash of culture across Europe's militaries. So there are many metrics we need to be looking at in terms of having a more capable alliance. First point. The second point is NATO should have a holistic view of security. And issues like energy dependence matter, information warfare matters, and those are areas that I think buttress the point I was making earlier that greater cooperation between NATO and the European Union is important because many of those issues are places where the EU also has capacities. So I do think we in the transatlantic space need to have a holistic view of security and need to be looking at this set of metrics. Thank you. I appreciate those responses. I just think we get awful boxed in by this conversation around 2% first because it tends to exclude capacities that are just as important as the military capacities. And second, to your point, um, Ms. Donfried, it has nothing to do with integration. So you can be spending that 2% in a way that doesn't integrate into the rest of your partners and be meeting the metric that the president says is the end all and be all of sufficient participation. Um, coordination, the quality of your spending um, is important as well. I don't deny the utility of having a number, but we should also have a means of, our, of, of being able to evaluate how you spend it too. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Menendez, anything else uh, for the good of the order? Oops, <laughs> Senator Cardin. <laughs> Mr. Chairman, uh, thank you. Are we out of time, I'm wondering? <laughs> uh, we have a, a unique friendship going between the Chairman <laughs> and myself. Let me uh, first acknowledge uh, my strong support for NATO. I listened to the Chairman and Ranking Member, my colleagues, all talk about this importance of NATO to our national security transatlantic partnership, and I strongly endorse that. So I want to do that as a preface to, uh, to my question. I, I think it's been an extremely important alliance, one that I strongly support. I'm going to also start with a quote from our former late Senator John McCain when he said, for the last seven decades, the United States and our NATO allies have served together, fought together, and sacrificed together for a vision of the world based on freedom, democracy, human rights, and rule of law. Put simply, the transatlantic alliance has made the United States safer and more prosperous and remains critical to our national security interests. I endorse Senator McCain's uh, comments there. So when we look at NATO expansion, we vet for all those purposes. 
how strong the country is and its institutions, its commitment to democracy, its commitments to human rights, its ability to control its military, et cetera, et cetera. Once they become a partner in NATO, we don't have much formal way of dealing where, with their commitment to these values. And I would say that there have been several NATO partners that have gone in the wrong direction on their commitments to good governance, human rights, rule of law, democratic institutions. So my question to you, how do we use our NATO alliance to reinforce its principal value, and that is to protect democracy and democratic institutions when some of our NATO partners uh, are moving in the wrong direction on this? Senator, the first point I'd make is that what was the purpose for NATO? It was to send lead downrange. It was to provide for military defense against our adversaries. It was not established primarily as a democracy-building institution. Well, NATO I'm going to disagree with that because when I look at every partner we had in NATO, when they came into NATO, they were committed to democratic institutions. And I can tell you, as we vet whether we will vote for approval, I won't support the accession of a country into NATO alliance that doesn't share those values. I, I, and I would, I would support your, your, your decision on that. I mean, the democratic, commitment to democratic values should be one of the criteria for membership. I'm going to let you answer, and I would suggest to you perhaps we talked about the threat from China. We talked about the threat from Russia. There's a direct threat against democratic institutions today. We've seen an erosion of democratic countries around the world for the 13th consecutive year. NATO stands for the protection of democratic countries. True. The problem is, is that NATO as a consensus-based organization may not be the most effective means to kind of stop a reversal in, in uh, commitment to democratic principles. It can put pressure on, on, on a member state uh, informally. Member states can put pressure on that, on that country uh, through other means, through their bilateral relationship, through institutions like the EU and such. But NATO is not going to be the driver of democratic reform. NATO's experience in that realm is really limited to civilian control over the military. It's not an institution that's been configured to monitor elections, uh, to, to, to measure adherence to core, to core values. It's an institution that's designed to help allies fight together. Now, I don't disagree with you. It's a military alliance. I recognize that. But its strength is in what it stands for. Otherwise, we invite the Russia to join us. They have a pretty strong military, but we don't want a strategic, we don't want a military alliance with Russia. Why? Because they don't share our values. NATO is a reflection of its member states' commitment to values. And member states should pressure countries, as we did in the case of Portugal, to reform in the direction towards democracy. We didn't do that directly through NATO's institutions or NATO decision-making. We did it through external pressure. Pressure from outside NATO through the, through our bilateral relationships with I, the European Union. Yeah, I, I would hope for a more I, – I don't disagree with what NATO's mission is. I understand that. But it seems to me there has to be the ability within the alliance to recognize the importance of its values. Because if we're just 
countries of convenience that have joined together for mutual defense, I would have picked a different group of countries, quite frankly. I don't think a lot of our alliances are really going to help us militarily. We're actually defending them in a sea that's trying to turn them away from democracy. And that's great. I'm for that. But if we, are, if we just look at this from a tunnel vision on military security and we don't look at the values we're trying to protect in Europe and the United States, we lose. And we have to use every institution we can because there are efforts being made to compromise our democratic institutions. That's Russia's principal objective, China's principal objective. When you introduce these sorts of, when you try and address these sorts of issues from the alliance, you will bump up against the consensus principle. And the only way you can really leverage NATO's institutional capacity against a particular member state is through the consensus principle. And you'll never get that as, as, as a result. OSCE is a consensus organization. They have principles, and they fight for those principles. And we, it's been pretty successful over the years, this consensus institution. And that includes countries that we're not terribly in line with on values. It seems to me, NATO, we shouldn't have that problem. If, if one breaks the consensus principle in NATO, you no, will be break attacking. It. You should be able to get consensus through our commitments to values to get change or, or to, to let it be known that it's not acceptable for a, a NATO partner to infringe upon the basic human rights of its citizens. And, and NATO provides a mechanism by which members can express that. But to translate that expression into action can be extremely difficult in a consensus-based organization. If you challenge the consensus principle, if you want to get into a position to be extreme where you want to be able to kick a member state out, I think you'd be bringing into the alliance a really divisive dynamic. I, I, I'm, I'm not saying that. I, I, maybe we got off to the wrong discussion here. I want to know how we use NATO and our associations within NATO to, to advance the values in countries that are moving in the wrong direction. I didn't suggest that we kick them out of NATO. I didn't suggest that we uh, penalize them and tell them they can't go to the, to the next NATO summit. I didn't suggest any of that. What I am suggesting is that there should be a focus for NATO membership of a commitment to democratic values. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Rodman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I um, appreciate your uh, commitment to uh, uh, our alliance. Um, clearly, uh, Russia represents a, a proximate threat and a geopolitical adversary of sorts. Uh, but increasingly long-term, I think there's a perspective that, that China uh, represents a greater long-term threat to freedom, to free enterprise, to human rights. Uh, we hope they won't go down that path, but they, they have taken some uh, frightening uh, turns. I'd like to ask each of you, to what extent do you believe NATO members that have been focused primarily on Europe, of course, uh, given its history and its, its charter, but to what extent do NATO members uh, recognize and, and seize the importance of, of the potential uh, threat of China, a rising China? Uh, that would be question one. <laughs> and question two, I'll get them both out. And then, and then question two um, is, is, what would you do if you, if you had the potential to do so? What would you do to strengthen NATO? What is the key to make, making NATO a more uh, powerful alliance? And I say that in part because uh, China will have a population many times our size uh, down the road. 
Uh, they will have an economy much larger than ours, just given the fact that they have a much or will have a much larger population. And uh, and for us to uh, to have the same economic might, uh, the the same uh, uh, capacity to build a a, 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 a impregnable military will depend not just on us standing alone, but us standing with others uh, whose population and economies we can, we can share. So again, um, do, do our NATO allies recognize the significance of China as a threat? Uh, are they taking action consistent with that? And then number two, what do we do to strengthen uh, NATO as it faces these challenges? Dr. Don Fried and then Mr. Brzezinski. Thanks so much, Senator Romney. In many ways, this connects to the question Senator Cardin raised, which is, I'm not sure we would have democracy in Europe to the extent that we do were it not for NATO, were it not for US engagement on the European continent. And the US was very clearly trying to expand a liberal small L international order at the end of World War II that was based on principles of liberal democracy, free market economy, rule of law, rights of the individual. And those values are essential to what NATO stands for. And we expect not only aspirants, the Georgias, Ukraines, Bosnias of the world, but also existing members to live up to those. And this is why I would argue all NATO allies agree with the US that China poses a real challenge to the order that we constructed together at the end of World War II. The fact of the matter is that China barely registers on NATO's agenda today. And I would agree with you that NATO needs to grapple much more directly with what that rise of China means. We see it in terms of China going west with its Belt and Road Initiative, making strategic investments in European ports and European tunnels that clearly have affected political stances of particular European countries. So I do think there is increasingly a recognition in Europe about the challenge China poses. And we've seen that in recent European Union writings as well, and also in the fact that many European member states, along with the EU, have tightened up their review of Chinese strategic investment. So that's to your first question. To your second question of, how can NATO become more powerful? I think for the US, it's about doubling down on this alliance. We, the US, are facing this challenge from a rising China, and I believe firmly that we are stronger for having democratic allies who are meeting this challenge with us. What is it that sets us apart from China and from Russia? It is precisely that we have allies. And so we should celebrate that and treasure it and work to enhance alliance cohesion. Thank you. Thank you. I guess I would add, I'd agree with, with Karen, that uh, the European Union, our European allies, are becoming aware of the threat posed by China. You see this discussion over Huawei. You see the recent strategy document where they defined China as a competitor, which is a pretty daring language for, for, for the European Union. And so Europe really is ready for a serious discussion with the United States on how it can collaborate to help shape uh, the relationship the West has with a, with a rising China. Uh, how to strengthen NATO? I agree that NATO was going to have to put China on its agenda. And we're seeing, beginning to see the first signs of that in, in the internal discussions going on with, within, the, within the alliance. 
as, as I mentioned in, in, in my testimony, what China is doing to the international rules-based order affects Europe just as much as it affects the United States. The good news is, is that uh, some of our allies actually are already very active. They have a history in Asia. Uh, the British just had a, a naval exercise with the Japanese. Uh, the Norwegians regularly send some ships to RIMPAC exercises. That kind of activity is going to have to increase in, in, in the future as the two continents deal with, 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 with this China. NATO also has a network of partnership agreements with countries in, in Asia Pacific, Japan, North Korea, uh, not, South, South Korea, Korea uh, <laughs> New Zealand, uh, Australia. Those can serve as, an, as the a foundation block, so to speak, for a more active allied NATO engagement in the region, which can be then the, you know, a building block to a more coordinated political, military, and economic response by the West to China's rise. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Romney. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to you and Senator Menendez for holding this hearing on this week of celebration of the 70th anniversary of NATO. Um, I want to begin, actually, by pointing out that um, on Sunday that the presidential elections in Ukraine, um, their first round was completed. They were determined to be free and fair and competitive by the international observers who were there, one of whom was a staff member of mine. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that, especially at a time when free and fair elections are not something that we're seeing certainly in Russia and a number of other countries that are, are aggressors. I, I want to go back to what I think was Senator Cardin's question about backsliding on the part of some of our NATO allies. Certainly, I think that's true of Turkey. Um, we're seeing that with Hungary and with Poland. And as you pointed out, Dr. Domfried, NATO is not just a military alliance. It's an alliance of shared values. And when the countries who are participating in NATO no longer share those democratic values, what kind of action can NATO take to address that? And how should we view the backsliding that's going on in those countries? I think that it's critically important that we talk about these issues because NATO's, what NATO has in its backpack to deal with this really is declaratory policy. It's not like the European Union, which actually does have provisions to try to work against democratic backsliding within its member states. So I do think that declaratory policy is the public stance that we can take. And I think it's very important that in private, you as members of the Senate, administration officials also have those conversations with the countries where we have concerns and make it clear that this is something we value because again, we are the lead nation. Our opinion of what's happening inside these countries does matter and does carry weight and we should not underestimate the influence that we have. And let me just add here that I think on this issue, as really on every issue we've discussed today, the fact that there's been a bipartisan stance in the Senate, in the House of Representatives, also is critically important. And I do think NATO would be seriously undermined were NATO itself to become a partisan issue. So I just want to commend the committee on its bipartisan approach to this set of issues. Thank you. 
Mr. Brzezinski, do you have anything to add to what, what NATO ought to do to address backsliding? I think Karen put it very well. You know, the, the alliance is based on a shared commitment to allies, to, to shared values. But we always have to remember it's primarily created to serve as a warfighting instrument. And the ability for that warfighting instrument to be effective relies on unity. And if we see our fundamental values dissipating, that alliance is, is, is weaker. How do you address these challenges, I believe, is really not through NATO as much as it is through our bilateral relationships or our multilateral relationships mm -hmm. or other institutions where we come up and speak directly and clearly to our allies and say, you've got to change course here or you need to address this in, in, in this way. We've done that in the past and it's been effective. I mean, right now, it, this is a very challenging time for the alliance. We have a democratic sag in, in, in the West. We see it in Central Europe, we see it in Turkey, we see it in Western Europe, and to a certain degree, we even see it here in North, in, in North America. The way we address that is gonna be through strong US leadership. And as Karen pointed out, Congress has a very important way, uh, role to play in that, particularly when it brings a bipartisan consensus to the table in support of these values. Thank you both. Um, NATO is setting up a new cyber center of excellence. And I know that that's supposed to be fully staffed by 2023. But do we know to what extent it's also going to address questions around um, what cyber intrusions, how cyber intrusions should be addressed with respect to a response? So for example, I remember we had a hearing in the Armed Services Committee several years ago where we talked about the fact that, or we raised the question, if someone um, attacks our networks in the United States and shuts down all of the utilities, for example, in the United States, is that considered an act of war? Is, how is NATO Cyber Center gonna deal with those kinds of questions? Do we know the answer to that? I'm not an expert on, on the cyber domain, but I'll make the following, share the following thoughts. First, the fact that NATO has set up such a cyber center is, is important. It reflects a commitment to integrate cyber operations into the full spectrum of NATO operations. Mm -hmm. uh, second, it's interesting that NATO has agreed that there can be an offensive dimension to its cyber operations. Uh, so that reflects a level of commitment to this. So it's not just gonna be defending but if someone messes with NATO, so, so to speak, and there's consensus with the alliance that this deserves a cyber response, it will be prepared to do that. It will take time for the alliance to get there. Uh, and then thirdly, NATO has agreed that a cyber contingency could, quote unquote, in, lead to the invocation of Article 5. Could, not necessarily says it will. Sure. But that's always been the case for every type of military contingency uh, that the alliance could, could face. It, there's not a guarantee that Article 5 kicks in. It only kicks in when there is a consensus decision by the alliance. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Thank you, thank you, uh, thank you Mr. Chairman. I have one brief follow-up. Um, I, I do want to remark on Senator Cardin's uh, observations and questions <laughs> because the Russians cannot outspend us and, uh, and NATO in terms of military spending but they'd be far better off in terms of leveraging, creating disunity. You know, when they engage in the EU and try to pick certain countries apart with their influences, both in terms of cyber influences, in terms of money to certain parties and entities, and can pick a country off 
then you undermine unity. The same is true at NATO. And I think that w there has to be serious thought. If uh, uh, Mr. Brzezinski, and I do believe in, in robust diplomacy, if the way in which we're going to deal with this question is robust diplomacy, then we've got to have some robust diplomacy with Turkey because they want to go by, uh, you know, the S-400, uh, and they're on a path uh, that is totally uh, antithetical to both NATO and our relationship with them. We have to tell uh, our friends uh, in Hungary that they're on the wrong path. We can't coddle them or to ultimately embrace authoritarianism. We have to challenge it. Because if I was Russia, I'd be spending far more money in trying to undermine some of these countries, both to undermine NATO cohesion, undermine EU cohesion as it relates, for example, to sanctions, and I have achieved my goal without any military uh, engagement and a, and a fraction of the cost. So how we do this, I think, is there's a lot of food for thought here that I, I think is, is appropriate. But uh, my question goes to the following. I have been uh, pressing the administration to work with our European partners to re-energize our common front against Kremlin aggression. Uh, Russia's attack in the Kursk Strait was over three months ago, and I think the response from the West was weak, to say the least. They continue their aggression in eastern Ukraine. Uh, their uh, work to destabilize Ukrainian politics hasn't stopped. Their malign efforts uh, in the upcoming European Parliament elections are pretty vivid. Uh, these actions are unacceptable. And I'm wondering how you would assess NATO's efforts to counter Russian government aggression in Europe. What's necessary to bolster these efforts from both the U.S. and from NATO? Because from my perspective, uh, Putin is on a march. Uh, he, he, he annexed Crimea. Uh, yes, condemnation, but nothing more. He's got a destabilizing reality in eastern Ukraine. Condemnation, but, well, we had some sanctions, some of which I helped author. You have the Kursk Strait, not that you have the Skripal attack. We haven't had uh, any sanctions response as it relates to that. So you see an emboldened action. And, and, you know, the challenge for us is that we only have a handful of peaceful diplomacy tools. Russia is willing to use militarism to advance its goals. We use peaceful diplomacy tools, which are largely sanctions, to fight back. So what should we be doing? What should we be seeing NATO do? to posture, at least, to send a very clear deterrent message to Russia? Sir, there's a fundamental flaw in the West's response to Russian revanchism, Russian aggression. It's that been for almost 15 years, we've, since the, the invasion of, uh, of Georgia in 2008, so maybe nine, 10 decade, our strategy has been a strategy of incrementalism. Uh, they go in. They violate the sovereignty of an independent nation, of democracy, seize territory, and our response uh, is piecemeal. It's hesitant. Look in the case of the invasion of Ukraine. There a country has a section of its, 10% uh, of its territory in the east seized, Crimea taken away, and our response, the West response, is to move in the days after that, that, that attack is a handful of U.S. aircraft. Uh, and weeks later, we move a U.S. company or two into the Baltics and into Poland. And in our West European allies, do nothing. We impose sanctions on them that are really targeted sanctions, largely against individuals. 
individuals who probably walk around Moscow wearing them as a red badge of courage, demonstration fealty to, uh, to, to Putin. And yes, we increase them over time, but they're targeted incremental sanctions. So what should we do? Well, I would do three things. One, I'd have more robust military deployments in, uh, in, 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 East, in North Central Europe. I don't think we're properly postured in, in, in that region. I'd increase NATO's military presence in, in, in the Baltic Sea. So a more robust military response. I'd move to sectorial sanctions. I'd really hit hard the Russian banking sector. Maybe you could incrementally tick off different banks and just increase the number of banks you hit over a period of time to put pressure on the Russian economy. The Russian economy is still growing at 1%, 1.5%. That's not hurting. Luke Oil's got record sales. So we're not hitting them as hard as we can. And then I would initiate a strategy of disruption. You know, if Putin's going to play a game against the West where he's funding rightist parties in, in Europe, meddling around in our elections through, 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 through social media and such, why don't we do the same against him? We did that during the Cold War, and we prevailed. I think Putin has a very fragile regime. He's also a very pragmatic character. And if we really ratcheted up the pressure through a more robust military posture, through stronger economic sanctions with real bite, and a strategy of disruption, he's more likely to back off. Mm. Some of those items are in our DASCA legislation, yes? Do you have any suggestions, Dr. Brown? I would just say, in addition to what you have in the DASCA legislation, it's critical that we be thinking about how do we build resilience in the face of Russian interference. And as you noted, the cyber tool is very inexpensive for Russia to deploy. And I think part of this is a NATO response, but also I think the US rightly is working very closely with the European Union on this because our European allies are equally concerned about Russian interference in their elections. And I also think there are bilateral roles here to play with US intelligence that can be helpful to our allies in highlighting some of the things that Russia, and it's not only Russia, Russia, China, Iran are doing in terms of meddling and trying to undermine their democracies. So I think we need to work on all of those fronts. And I'll just pick up on the fact that Senator Shaheen mentioned Ukraine. It really was encouraging to see this expression of vibrant democracy in Ukraine over the weekend. And I think the fact that we have been very open in public about our concern with Russian interference in elections, that that in and of itself has provided a deterrent effect as well. But I think we need to move out on all of those arenas to build resilience to Russian interference. Thank you both. Well, thank you. Thank you to both of you uh, for testifying here today. It's been enjoyable going back uh, down memory lane about the uh, successes that NATO has had. We've touched on a number of the challenges that are right here in front of us now. And we only scratch the surface on some of them, and not the least of which is uh, a uh, uh, NATO ally, Turkey, that uh, the reference has been made to the fact that they're going to be purchasing uh, uh, military equipment from the Russians. I mean, this is totally uh, against everything that NATO stands for. Uh, certainly, that they, those can't be interoperable with, uh, with, with NATO materials. Um, some of us uh, have had some very robust discussions with our uh, Turkish friends. Uh, I'm not satisfied with where we are. Uh, I, I don't think they have the, a full understanding of the consequences that are going to come. I agree with you, Mr. Brzezinski. We can't sit on our hands, particularly on this new challenge that we're getting. I think we're going to have to act uh, quickly. We're going to have to act severely. And uh, we have uh, uh, mandatory uh, sanctions that will take place if indeed that sale goes through. And they, 
they claim the sale's gone through, but they haven't deployed yet and won't deploy till August or September. But uh, this is a really serious challenge, and I suspect we're going to be speaking about it more here in the committee. So thank you both uh, for coming here today and uh, visiting with us. And uh, it's been, uh, I, I think, a, a, a eye-opening discussion in many regards. For information to the members, the record will remain open until the close of business Friday. We ask the witnesses to respond promptly to any of those questions, uh, and those answers will be made part of the record. Uh, with a sincere thanks to the committee, the committee is adjourned.